Psalm 41 to the chief musician, a psalm of David. Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive, and he will be blessed on the earth. You will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sickbed. I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil of me. When will he die and his name perish? And if he comes to see me, he speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes out, he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise no more. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you are well pleased with me, because my enemy does not triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face forever. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon and he shaved, changed his clothing and came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I stood on the bank of the river. Suddenly seven cows came up out of the river, fine looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such ugliness as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the gaunt and ugly cows ate up the first seven, the fat cows. When they had eaten them, when they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as at the beginning. So I awoke. Also I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk, full and good. Then behold, seven heads with withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprang up after them. And the thing, thin heads devoured the seven good heads. So I told this to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. And the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. <clears throat> now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and let him set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will be in the land of Egypt, and the land may not perish during the famine. Nothing exists without a cause, and nothing changes without a cause. If there was ever nothing, there would still be nothing now. 
There wouldn't be a debate about existence because it wouldn't exist. But here we are, and so we can, in fact, debate the fact whether we, how we got here and whether we're actually here at all, because people do this. They debate, well, I don't even know if existence is real. The fact that we have that debate shows us that existence must re be real, in other words. And in this world, where we are, there are things that are constantly changing. Absolutely nothing stays the same. A bar of gold may sit for a thousand years and it might look like it hasn't changed, but in fact, if nothing else, that bar of gold has gotten a thousand years older. Changes are coming to the land of Egypt and something must be the cause of those changes. But what we think might be the cause is suspect when we're told in advance that those changes are going to happen. I mean, people can say that the weather's going to change based on observable patterns or other phenomena. But there are other things which we're told about which cannot happen in that way. When we're told about future events which will occur, and there's nothing to assign that change to in this natural world, then we are either lacking knowledge about the natural world, or the changes come about by something which is supernatural. Pharaoh has dreams. Pharaoh's dreams mean something specific. The dreams their interpretation and their fulfillment are not natural. And so for, for those things, there must be a supernatural cause. Our text verse for today comes from Isaiah chapter 42. I will lay waste the mountains and the hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will make the rivers coastlands and I will dry up the pools. God speaks again and again in the Bible about what he will do to people, through people, to the land, to the world, and so on. He tells us sometimes thousands of years in advance what he's going to do. And he says, pay attention. I will prove that I am here. And so you should probably pay attention because of that. And then he gives us the choice. As marvelous as it seems, he gives us the choice. We can pay attention or we can ignore him. My thought is that if he is there and he has proved it as he has in his word, then it certainly is worth paying attention to what he has to say. And what he has to say is found in only one place. That's the pages of the Holy Bible. It has enough past evidence to support itself so that we have every confidence in what it tells us about the future. And so let's take time again today to search it out. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have four separate thoughts for you today. The first is the interpreter of dreams. This is verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon, and he shaved, changed his clothing, and came to Pharaoh. Upon hearing about Joseph's abilities by the cupbearer, we saw that a couple weeks ago, Pharaoh is in anticipation of finally finding an answer to the dreams. Joseph is called, and he's brought out of the dungeon. Once out, he's shaved, his clothing is changed, and he's brought to Pharaoh. Now, according to ancient literature, Egypt is believed to be the only country in the Middle East that uh, regularly practiced shaving. They shave both the head and the face. And this is seen in the hieroglyphs as well. Now, before he's brought to Pharaoh, he's cleaned up in this manner, and he's also given clean clothing. In this verse, then, we see a return to the pictures of Jesus and his work. Pharaoh means great house. Joseph is called out of the pit, which if you remember from those previous sermons, the Hebrew term habor was used for the pit. 
It's the same term that's already been used several times to describe the tomb, which prefigured the tomb of Jesus Christ. Jesus is called out of the tomb by the ruler of the great house, God, if you see the parallel there. This is reflected, for example, in Acts 10, verse 40, which openly says, God, him, God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. Joseph's being shaved brings in a concept which we've seen in many, many sermons of the past. Hair. Throughout the Bible, hair has several undertones. It denotes awareness, such as man being a sentient being, an aware being. And this takes us right back, for example, to Jacob and Esau. Jacob was smooth-skinned. Esau was hairy. Jacob pictured Christ, and Esau pictured Adam. If you remember those sermons, if you didn't see them, it was a very clear picture that was being made. Barley is called the hairy crop, and it brings in the thought of awareness as well. It's the same word, basically, as the word hair. In one use of it, it is used to bring sin to reminder. This is found in Numbers chapter 5. If you've ever read that particular passage, there is this little portion where it speaks of the right concerning jealousy of a possibly unfaithful wife and what they're supposed to do. There in Numbers 5, it gives this direction. It says, he shall bring the offering required for her, the unfaithful wife, or he believes she's unfaithful, one-tenth of an epaw of barley. Now, he could have said wheat, he could have said lentils or spelt or whatever else, but God chose barley because it's something that signifies an awareness. Bring that one-tenth of an epaw of barley meal. He shall pour no oil on it and pour no frankincense on it because it is a grain offering of jealousy, an offering for remembering for bringing iniquity to remembrance. Once again, the concept of hair is brought in in this hairy crop, the barley. The study of hair in the Bible could go on and on, as you know. But here Joseph is picturing Christ and he's shaved. Shaving is, that some, is something that would also occur in the next chapter of Numbers, if you know that. It's uh, Numbers chapter 6. It's something known as the Nazarite vow. Here's what it says about that particular vow. Then the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the door of the tabernacle of meaning and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire under the sacrifice of peace offering. So it's taking this memory of this sin that was uh, represented by this Nazarite vow and it's being placed under the peace offering as an offering to God. Now, whether Jesus had the same appearance of hair after the resurrection or not isn't known, but we know that two of his disciples walked and talked with him. And when they did, they went all the way to Emmaus. They didn't recognize him until he broke bread. And then in the book of Revelation, John says that his hair is white like wool, as white as snow. The shaving of Joseph's hair is certainly showing us this type of change in Jesus. And finally, we see Joseph given a change of clothing. When Jesus was crucified, the gospels are very clear about this. He was completely stripped and his clothes were taken by the Romans. When he was taken down from the cross, he was laid only in strips of linen along with burial spices. But he was clothed after the resurrection. Unless there was a wardrobe in the tomb with him or an open store down the road, which would have been in violation of the Sabbath day, then these must have been prepared specifically for the resurrection. What seems like an innocuous verse about Joseph being prepared to meet Pharaoh is actually a nifty picture of Christ coming out of the tomb, having been accepted by God the Father. Verse 15, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. Joseph's deliverance from the pit is 
because of his unique ability, which was told by Pharaoh, by the cupbearer to Pharaoh. No one else possessed this ability, but he is told that Joseph can do it. Verse 16, so Joseph answered Pharaoh and said, it is not in me. Joseph does not say he's not going to give an answer. Instead, he uses the term bilide, which is not in me. To say that if he interprets this dream, the interpretation will have come from God and not from him. It is independent of his own opinion. In essence, he will speak and it will be God who speaks through him. And what a beautiful picture of Jesus that is right there, isn't it? Verse 16 continues, God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Joseph is so confident that he's there to meet the Lord's will that he openly states that the answer is forthcoming and that it would be sufficient to give peace to Pharaoh after his night of disturbed sleep and his morning of frustration at getting no answer from his wise men and his counselors. Our second thought today, the dream is repeated. I'm going to read you about six verses in a row without any comment. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I stood on the bank of the river. Suddenly seven cows came up out of the river, fine looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such ugliness as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the gaunt and ugly cows ate up the first seven, the fat cows. When they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as at the beginning. So I awoke. Also I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stock, full and good. Then behold, seven heads withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprang up after them, and the thin heads devoured the seven good heads. Pharaoh's recounting of the dream is essentially the same as what he's already told to his magicians, and that's why I didn't want to give you all kinds of analysis. We've already talked about it. But there are a sm couple of small differences in it. One is that he tells Joseph that the cows were so ugly that he'd never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. He didn't say that the first time. A second is that after the bad cows ate up the good ones, no one would have known that they had eaten them and they were just as ugly as at the beginning. That's another point he didn't give before. Now in the last sermon, we saw that these cows eating each other was contrary to nature for several reasons. One is that a herbivore would not eat another of its own kind as if it were a carnivore. Now, although this is a dream which symbolizes real things, the symbolism is very clearly explained. The cows and the stalks symbolize years, years of abundance and years of famine. The cows don't actually eat each other, okay? They never have and it will never happen. So if you read a commentary that says that the famine is so bad that the cows are actually eating each other, go ahead and put a line through that because there are commentators that say that the cows are so hungry they actually eat each other. It's not what's being said here. God has given us the meanings, and so we can stick with what he has given them. All right? Finally, while Pharaoh is speaking, an extra term is used to describe the thin heads on the stalks. He calls them withered, meaning they're barren or their fruit is dry. Those are the only differences in the story from before. But by telling the story a little bit differently the second time, it shows that what we're reading here is not a fable. It's an actual account. And this is similar to what we see in the first three gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called the, the uh, synoptic gospels. They tell the same story. They tell it very closely, but with differences. And because they're so similar, we have liberal scholars out there that will say that they cannot be true because they simply copy each other. And yes, they say this all the time. But because they're so different in other ways, other liberal scholars will say that they can't be true because the two stories don't 
match. Two things are certain. The first is that the stories are exactly what God intends. And the second is that we should never, never listen to liberal scholars of the Bible. The account here, as relayed by Moses, is accurate and it supports itself because of the similarity and because of the differences. You have every reason to trust that this is a true, accurate, and reliable account worthy of looking into because God has included it in his word. This happens not just here and in the Gospels, but throughout the entire Bible. From time to time, God gives the same story differently from different viewpoints. They're similar, but they have differences. And every time this happens, there is some scholar who then writes a commentary about how the Bible is filled with error, not understanding why the differences are there and that God has a very specific reason for every one of them. Just ignore those people. Every difference has a reason, and every story which is given two or three or four times is given to give us better insights into the truth of the word, whether we understand that or not. And while I'm speaking about people that love to diminish the Bible, something happened this past week. I was so angry. I, I, I was beside myself. Fox News, I'm watching it Christmas Eve. And they decided to let all their anchors have the night off. And so what did they do? They went to the Holy Land. I don't know when they filmed this. It could have been a couple months ago for all I know. They went to the Holy Land and this lady did a, uh, a, a, you know, a, a piece. And I think she called it fact, fiction, and faith of the Christmas story. Whatever. It was something very similar to that. And she went over there, and she's just a, a newscaster, and she wants to dig into the details of the Christmas story. And so she goes to Bethlehem, and she goes to Nazareth, and she goes all over the place asking people about the Bible narrative. And she uh, interviewed, like, Catholic priests and Greek Orthodox priests, and she just went to everybody and just asked them, you know, tell me about the Christmas story. Tell me about what happened here. Now, this is a lady. She's probably wanting to know the truth because she's there, and she's been given this story. And one of the people, I was so mad when I heard this guy, I thought, Here's what happened. She goes up to Nazareth, and there's this Methodist minister up there. And he's sitting there talking to her about, you know, the Bible and about Jesus. And he's, he's just got this, this sappy way about him. And he says to her, almost in a condescending manner, I bet, you, I bet you think that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And she's like, you know, obviously. That's what everybody says. And he says, well, modern critical scholars have come to the conclusion that Jesus wasn't born in in Bethlehem at all. He was born in Nazareth. And she's like, what? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, there's one source for where Jesus was born on the face of the earth. It's the Bible. And in the Old Testament, we've already seen how many pictures of him being born in Bethlehem already. And we're going to see it explicitly noted in Malachi 5 too. You know, but out of you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, shall come the one forth for me who is uh, origins are of old from eternity. It says it specifically where he's going to be born. And then in the New Testament, in Matthew and in Luke, it says that he's born in Bethlehem. As a matter of fact, the scribes went back to Malachi 5 too and said, this is where he's going to be born to Herod. And that's all we have. And then it says later he will be called a Nazarene, but it explains why he'll be called a Nazarene. Specifically, he was born in Bethlehem, but he's called a Nazarene for a reason. And these people start introducing doubt into this woman's mind, and she's there just to find out the truth. Now, unless she has enough sense to go and just simply read this and check with somebody that actually understands the word of God, the rest of her life, she is going to believe that there is doubt in God's word. And I think what a high price for that man to pay when he stands in front of God and God judges him and he says, I knew better than you about 
the story of Jesus and where he was born. I can just see the reaction. Depart from me. I just can see it right now. This is how precious God's word is and how he asks us to hold to it, to hold fast to it and to believe it. You are saved by grace through faith. God just wants faith. There's nothing else we can add to the work of Jesus Christ. And these people are diminishing people's faith and they're calling into question God's word in order to sound scholarly when all they do is look foolish in the presence of the Lord. I, I can't even imagine it. Verse 24 continues, So I told this to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Pharaoh finishes his words to Pharaoh with the note that none of his wisest assistants were able to help. Including this here shows us that it is beyond the finest minds of the entire world at the time, because Egypt was the greatest empire in the world when this was written. If the dream is from God, then God must intend for this dream to be interpreted. If the dream can't be explained, then that dream was not from God. But if it is, then it is now in Joseph's hands. Thus it means that Joseph is the one who is able to divine the mind of God. This is the intent of Pharaoh's comments to him right now. Our third thought today, the dream explained. Verse 25, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, there's no note of hesitation, there's no delay, there's no need to first uh, pray about it or to go to God in some other way seeking an answer. God has revealed the dream to Joseph and he has done so immediately. Joseph proves himself to be the Lord of dreams, just as his brothers called him all the way back. Remember, they said, here comes the, that master of dreams, Baal Hama Lachot, or however you pronounce it. He's the Lord of dreams. In this, we see that the failure of the wise men to interpret the dream is the needed proof that Joseph is now speaking by God's divine counsel. Verse 25 continues, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. Now this verse, those few words of this verse right here, I think it's six words, the dreams of Pharaoh are, yeah, six words. Those six words, listen to how many different ways this has been translated. The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. That's the NIV. Both of Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing, NLT. The dreams of Pharaoh are one. That's the ESV or the New King James Version, which I'm also reading here. Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same, NASB. The dream of Pharaoh is one, King James Version. Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing, Holman Bible. Pharaoh's dreams are identical. That's the ISV, and that's a very bad translation. Both dreams of Pharaoh have the same meaning. That's the Net Bible. Pharaoh had the same dream twice. That's God's word, and that is not a great translation. And finally, I'll give you one more. The king's dream is one. That's the Douay. That's a Catholic version. And the only thing that's wrong with it, it says the kings instead of pharaohs. They chose, instead of calling him pharaoh, to call him the king. But it's good translation other than that. There are a couple of reasons why I read those for you. One is to show how much difference there is in a single translation of even a part of a single verse. Secondly, it's to show that two entirely different translations can mean exactly the same thing, such as the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the dream of Pharaoh is one. And the third is to show you that you will learn a lot more by reading different translations of the Bible. And finally, to show you that some versions are just wrong. The ISV said Pharaoh's dreams are identical. They weren't identical. One had cows and one had wheat. They were identical in meaning, but not in content, and they should have said that. The word used for one is the word echad. 
Echad means one, but it can be one comprising many. A cluster of grapes is one cluster of grapes, but it has many, many grapes. And so saying either the dreams are one or the dream is one is essentially the same thing because of Echad. They were in fact two dreams, but they comprise one unit. So maybe you're sitting there and you're wondering, why is Charlie bringing this up? And maybe you, you will never remember this. But if you do, I'll be proud of you for one. And two, you will learn something very important. It bears on similar statements made elsewhere in the Bible that have the most theological importance of all. When asked what the greatest commandment of all is, Jesus turned to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. And he said this, the first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What Jesus cited is called the Shema, or hear. In Hebrew, it says, Shema Yisrael, Yehovah Eloheinu, Yehovah Echad. There's that word. The word Echad is used to describe the Lord. He is one, but one here can mean with a plurality, just like Pharaoh's dreams. If one meant one and only one, then God could have, because he knows the Hebrew language, he could have used a word, yachid, which simply means one without any possible plurality. In the Greek, though, guess what? When Mark wrote that uh, citation of Jesus, he wrote it in the Greek. So we have to make sure, because if the Greek only allows one and only one, then that must interpret the Shema of the Old Testament, and it can mean only one without a plurality. But guess what the Greek does? Jesus cited that, Mark wrote it in Greek, and he used the word heis, and it can mean the exact same thing as echad. Paul uses it in Galatians 3.28 to speak of our position in Jesus Christ. Listen to this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, using the word heis. The importance of the translation of Pharaoh's dreams concerns the importance of the meaning of words and concepts which help us understand what we're being told. Understanding that two dreams can be one dream is helpful to understand that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit can be one God. You wouldn't think this verse is that important, would you? And yet it is. Oh God, the Bible is such a wonderful treasure. Even the smallest detail can be amazingly profound. In this book is wisdom beyond measure. In it, the answers to our difficult questions are found. Verse 25 continues, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. The Greek philosopher Aristotle taught that there are four types of causes to all things. There is the material cause. You got what you're made of. There is the formal cause. There is the efficient cause. And there is the final cause. Now, whether you understand that or not doesn't really matter. Joseph is now instructing Pharaoh on the cause of things. There will be a famine. Aristotle would say that the material cause of the famine is the weather. It's the water and the wind. The weather is the cause of the environmental conditions. And then you have a formal cause of the famine, which is the change in the weather. This is, includes drying up the Nile and the wind, which swings around and comes from the east. These causes will bring about a change in Egypt. But in this verse, even before the material and the formal causes are introduced, Joseph gives us the efficient cause and he hints at the final cause. He says, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. 
Pharaoh may be the ruler, but his kingdom is subject to the one who is behind the movement of the wind and the water. God is the efficient cause. He's the one who directs both the flow of the water and the changes in the wind. As the efficient cause, he is behind those changes which are going to occur. And the reason Pharaoh is given this dream hints at the final cause, which is to bring about the purpose of the famine. The final cause is not given directly, but we're going to see final causes as this story unfolds. And actually, there are quite a few of them that I I thought of. There is the purpose of making Joseph the ruler of Egypt. There is the purpose of bringing Israel down to Egypt. There is the purpose of fulfilling Joseph's dreams, which he had back there, what, chapter 36 or so. There's the purpose of freeing Israel from future bondage, the redemption of mankind being pictured by that. There's the purpose of bringing about the Passover, which is a picture of Christ's cross. There's the purpose of showing that there is one God and that he is in control of both the weather and of the future because the weather of the future is being revealed before it comes about. There is the purpose of picturing Christ in all of these things. And in all of these things, there is one ultimate purpose, one ultimate final cause, and that is the bringing of glory to God. In other words, each final cause is directly related to the efficient cause, who is God. God causes so that God may be glorified And if you can see this in everything that you read in the pages of the Bible, then you will be able, and I mean this sincerely, to see it in every single thing that happens in your life as well. This is one reason why we're given the Bible. It shows us the state of humans, and it shows us the state of humanity. Humans have a material cause. This is the stuff that we're made of. But we're made of exactly the same stuff as other animals. So we have a formal cause. That's what makes us humans instead of monkeys or dogs or wallabies or some other thing. The Bible tells us that our efficient cause is not evolution, but God's creative effort. And what is our final cause? Why did God make man? King David wanted to know, and he wrote these words in the 144th Psalm. He said, Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him or the son of man that you are mindful of him? This final cause eludes us until we understand who God truly is. He is the self-existent, all-glorious creator. God created so that we, you and you and you and all of us, can share in his glory and thus bring more glory to himself. This is not a self-seeking, conceited glorification, but the sharing of himself, which should naturally lead us to glorify him. And this is hinted at in Joseph's words to Pharaoh right here. For the ultimate purpose of bringing glory to God, Joseph says these words to Pharaoh, Asher ha-Elohim oseh higid le-Pharaoh. What the Elohim is doing, he caused to be seen by Pharaoh. Out of 2,600 times that this word Elohim, God, is used when speaking of the God in the Bible, less than 400 are used in the way that Joseph uses right here. He calls him Ha Elohim, the God. In other words, there is no other God, and this God is showing that to you right now. The God is causing Pharaoh to see the future as a demonstration of who he is and the future that is known to him. 
because it is known to him, then nothing that will happen will change what he already sees. Whatever we do is already figured into the equation and nothing we do can change the future that he sees. Now that's not fatalistic. We still have choices to make. God just knows what choices we're going to make. But I will tell you something. There is a great white multitude standing in the presence of God in the book of Revelation. And that hasn't happened yet in human history. We're still going this way and that's way out here. But if those people are standing there in front of the Lord, then that means every single thing that those people ever did from the moment they were conceived all the way to the end of their life was factored in to the fact that they're standing in front of God, waving those palm branches and saying salvation belongs to our Lord God Almighty. And that means that your life has a purpose and every single thing in your life is being worked out for God's glory and for your good if you have called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If not, then he's going to be glorified through something else that happens to you. But either way, God will receive the glory for what happens in man's life. And God is in complete control. So if your finances are spinning out of control today, or if your business is failing, or if your wife, like my friend, is just diagnosed with lung cancer, God knows it already. And he is using that to be glorified in a way that we don't understand right now. You might not think that with everything that happens, but I got to tell you what, when I was laying in bed last week with that flu, I was hallucinating for two full days. And after that, my wife probably heard me say, oh God, a thousand times. I never questioned God. I never said, why God? Because I understood that he was using this to mold me for whatever he is molding me for. And whatever happened last week with that sermon, it was part of me being sick. Wept all the way through it. Charlie bubbling, bumbling, crying through the sermon, but that was part of what God knew would happen. So I didn't go home and say, oh God, you know, why did you let that happen? It's because he loves us enough to work with us in this stream of humanity so that he shows us he is in control and that it will come all right in the end. There they are, the great white multitude standing in the presence of God in his mind already. Are we one of them? And guess what? Even after that, there's a word at the end of Revelation that shows that it's all done. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. It's in control. Don't let it worry you if things seem like they're out of control. Just keep giving him glory. Keep doing it. He'll be glorified and he will receive your praise and he'll acknowledge you for it when you're going through that storm. You are the God who knows and sees all things. Every wave which beats upon the shore sandy beach. How many fish are in the ocean and every bird that sings. Into eternity does your wisdom and knowledge reach. Verse 26. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. We don't need to speculate if the cows will eat one another or not. The interpretation is given and the cows symbolize something else. Not real cows. The seven good cows are seven years and likewise the seven good heads are seven years. The two dreams are one. Verse 27, and the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years and the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. So following the first seven years, there will be seven more years, years of famine. These are represented by the thin, ugly cows and the empty blighted heads. Verse 28, this is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. 
Joseph is completely confident in the interpretation. He says that what he said he stands on, and he repeats his title for God, Ha Elohim has shown Pharaoh. The God has revealed through Joseph what he is about to do. Verse 29, indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt. We've seen this dream repeated three times now, and this is the first time that the true significance of the first seven years is noted. They aren't just seven years, but seven years of Sabah Gadol, great plenty. And this won't be just an isolated boom, but it will be throughout all the land of Egypt. All of Pharaoh's domain will be blessed as the Nile Delta floods and the winds are favorable. Verse 30, but big word in the Bible, after them seven years of famine will arise and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt and the famine will deplete the land. Following on the heels of the seven good years, there will be seven terrible years, years of famine, which are so bad that all of the abundance of the preceding seven years will be utterly forgotten. Everything which has flourished will be reduced to less than a memory of a memory. Verse 31, so the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. Nothing which was gained will remain. The earth will crack and the land will mourn. It will be so bad that Joseph uses a term in the Hebrew which does not have a direct equivalent in the English language. He says, Chaved hu me'od. It will be very heavy. The concept of heaviness is given to show that the strain of the weight of those years and the crushing burden they bring will be too much to bear. Thus we translate it as very severe. Verse 32, and the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. Two more times in a row, Joseph says that it is Ha Elohim, the God who has established and purposed what is coming. The term Elohim or God is mentioned nine times in this chapter, but each time he is mentioned in relation to the interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams by Joseph, he is called the God. It is the God who has doubled the dream to Pharaoh, and the reason for doing so is that the matter is firmly determined by the God, and so the God will hasten what he has decreed. Like a wave rolling towards a shore, nothing is going to stop the tide of this prophecy. Our fourth and final thought today, Joseph's wise counsel. Verse 33, now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Without any hint from the Bible as to whether he was asked for advice or not, he goes directly from an interpreter of dreams to a counselor of remedies. He was the revealer of disaster and now he is the imparter of hope. Because of this, now therefore that. As the Geneva Bible says here, and I love their quotes, they're always about one little line commentaries and they're usually spot on. They say, the office of a true prophet is not only to show the evils to come, but also the remedies for the same. Man, you see that all the way through the Bible. Here comes a prophet and he says, judgment is coming. The Lord is going to send you into exile out beyond Damascus. Judgment is coming. He's going to take away your vines and your fruit, and he's going to take away all the good things in your land if you just don't turn back to God. But here's the remedy, and he tells him what to do. He tells him, if you just do this one thing, turn your heart back to the Lord your God, and there will be release from this judgment. And man, we've got the Bible written. 
and we got it right in front of us in churches all over America. And all we need to do is take these small little pieces of flesh in our bodies and turn them back to the Lord and our families will be healed. Our nation will be healed. We'll be on the right path to prosperity and to goodness and overflowing abundance once again. The prophet has two jobs. One is to tell the people that disaster is coming and the other is that it can be averted. And we need to read our Bible now. We need to understand that because God is long-suffering, but he will not wait forever for the repentance of his people. Keep that in mind. Joseph shows himself to be a man whom God trusts with his wisdom and his mysteries and one whom God has said in him is the wisdom that I am bestowing. And so as easily as he relayed the interpretation, he now submits the counsel. Let Pharaoh select a discerning and a wise man and set him over all the land of Egypt. Just as the interpretation came from God, then this counsel must be his work as well. Pharaoh could have taken offense at this too. You know that. He's given advice that's unsolicited. He could have said, what are you doing? Go back to the, go back to the prison. He doesn't do that. Oh, you calling me incompetent? Instead, he allows Joseph to continue. The words are taken as they are intended to protect and continue Pharaoh's kingdom, not to usurp it. He recommends a governor who will have authority over all of the affairs of the land. Verse 34, let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. Under the governor of the land, Joseph next recommends officers be appointed It's obvious that they would be subordinates who would handle given areas and tasks within those areas in order to secure one-fifth of the produce. And we don't know how this produce is collected. The Bible doesn't tell us. It could have been a tax. It could have been Pharaoh bought it at a reduced rate, whatever. The idea, though, is that there are seven years of more than normal abundance, and one-fifth of this superabundance would be enough to cover each of the seven years of famine. Verse 35, and let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Now, what Joseph is suggesting here has absolutely no downside at all. If the famine doesn't come about, Pharaoh is still going to have all of the produce at his disposal and under his authority. If it does come about, then there will be more than double gain for every year of the famine that's coming. For Pharaoh, Joseph's words can only be taken as wise counsel. He will lose nothing, but he could gain everything. Verse 36, our last verse of the day. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. Joseph repeats that there will be a famine and that what is coming will require this action if Egypt is to survive, not completely perish. Again, if the dream is from God, then God intends for the dream to be interpreted. If Joseph was given the interpretation, then God is speaking through Joseph. The obvious conclusion for Pharaoh is that Joseph is correct and that this is God's word. It's been spoken to him and that he must now pay heed to the advice. Let me say that again. The obvious conclusion for Pharaoh is that Joseph is correct and that God's word has been spoken to him, and that he must now pay heed to the advice. God has spoken to us, and we must now pay heed to the advice. This is our last verse of the day, and it asks us, it asks us to consider that precept. If the Bible is from God, 
And I personally, Charlie Garrett, have every reason in the world to believe that this is God's revealed word to us. Then God intends for this book to be researched. If the research is proper, then it is intended to be applied. Why would Pharaoh give a dream and then tell him something contrary to what the dream means? He wouldn't do that. And why would God give us his word and then allow us to live in a manner which is contrary to the word that he has given? He wouldn't. If Pharaoh's dreams are true and Joseph's interpretation is correct, then Joseph's advice is sound. And if God's word has proven itself true, and it has again and again and again, and if proper handling of it is demonstrated, then the advice of the handler should be listened to. Pastor, teacher, TV person explaining the words God, God's word to you, it should be applied. Pharaoh now has a choice concerning God's word, and we're going to see how he acts upon it next week. We have a choice concerning God's word as well. And only time will tell if each one of us is going to apply it properly or not. And I would hope you do. You know that this is the driving desire of my entire life is for people to want to pursue this word. That's the entire driving desire of my life is God's word and the preciousness of it and what God has given us. Don't put God on a shelf when you get home. Apply his word moment by moment as you store up heavenly grain in anticipation of future famines which are surely coming. Applying the word to your life can only be done after getting one thing right though. You can't get the horse before the cart. If you want to apply God's word to your life properly, the way to do it is to get right with God first and that is to be right with Jesus Christ. This word reveals Jesus my Lord and Jesus my Lord reveals the unseen father. And you can't have the one without going through the other, okay? So let me take just a minute and explain to you the wonderful thing that Jesus Christ did for you and me. The Bible says that we're human beings and we're created in God's image. He's the efficient cause, not evolution. We didn't come out of the slime. We were created and we sinned against God. We broke his commandment. And now we have a separation between us and him. And we cannot fix it because we're going this way in time and we can't go back before what happened. And so God stepped out of eternity into time, into the stream of human existence. And he says, I will repair this breach. He came, God incarnate in the womb of a woman. He didn't inherit his father's sin like we did. He's without sin. And then what did he do? He lived the law perfectly that you and I cannot live. We've all done something to offend a holy God, whether we want to admit it or not. And then he, after living that perfect life, he says, I love them enough to give up this life, this perfect life, in exchange for their sins. And the cross of Calvary offers us that exchange. My sin is nailed to his cross, and his righteousness is granted to me, his perfect righteousness, so that when God sees me, he sees his son. He doesn't see screwed up old Charlie Garrett. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And here it comes. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus, I can't do it. I can't go back before my sin and undo it. And I want to be forgiven by you because you're outside of time. You're the bridge. You're the human and you're the God. So you can bridge back to the heavenly father. I want that. And once you do it, it's done. The Bible says that you are saved. 
and it is done. You can never lose your salvation. You sure can lose your joy, though. Just stop going to church for a while. You'll lose your joy, but God will never, never reject you as his child again. So call on Jesus Christ. Be reconciled to God the Father through his precious blood. And let me read you a closing verse today. Remember, we're talking about God's word and the word and the famine and all that. Listen to what Amos says. These are scary words. You talk about some scary words to me. It's to be without this book. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. Someday they may ban every Christian element from the internet. No more online Bibles. Got to take your Bible and check it in with your guns. Where are you going to rely at that time? I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You learn it now and you'll have it there during that time of famine. Ah, oh, wonderful God. Next week is Genesis 41, verses 37 through 45. That's just a few verses. It's called Prophet, Priest, and King, the Savior of the World. Wonderful stuff. And I say this each week, and every week it's more relevant to me as I say it. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you, and he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. Now, we've got communion coming up in just a minute. But before that, you know, we're almost done with the poem on the whole book of Genesis. I can't skip a week, so here we go. Joseph's wise counsel. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him in a hurry out of the dungeon in which he was walled. In a rush, they made him scurry. And he shaved, changed his clothing too, and came to Pharaoh after all the hullabaloo. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is none who can interpret it. Quite a dilemma, it would seem. But I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream. To interpret it, this you can do as easily as eating vanilla ice cream. Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. He will provide an interpretation. You will see. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream, I stood on the bank of the river and saw this theme. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow on the land, which was green and flat. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and ugly and gaunt. Such ugliness I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. My dream they did haunt. And the gaunt and ugly cows, up they ate. The first seven, the fat cows I was shown. When they had eaten them up, I now state, after they had eaten them, no one would have known. For they were just as ugly as before, so I awoke from the dream so sore. Also I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk, full and good heads of acclaim. Then behold, seven heads withered, thin, and blighted. By the east wind sprang up after them. These are what I cited. And the thin heads did eat the seven good heads, as if they were a tasty treat. So I told this to the magicians, but there was none who could explain it to me. No, not a single one. Then Joseph to Pharaoh said, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what lies ahead, what he is about to do here under the sun. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years too. The dreams are one, have no fears. This is what God is showing you. And the seven thin and ugly cows, which came up after them that you noted, are seven years as time allows, the time set by God as I have quoted. And the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine, times when life is thinned. 
This is the thing, Pharaoh, which I have spoken to you. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty are at hand. They will come throughout Egypt, throughout all the land. But after them, seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten. In the land of Egypt, there will be demise. The famine will deplete the land from which the previous abundance was begotten. So in the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine which will follow, for it will be very severe as you have been shown. I know it's a bitter pill that you must swallow. And the dream was repeated as if a divine nod to Pharaoh twice for him to look out, because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. This is something that you should plan. Let Pharaoh do this and let him assign officers over the land, all its frontiers, to collect one-fifth of the produce by design of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food-like security of those coming good years ahead and store up grain under Pharaoh's authority and keep food in the cities for the famine will be widespread. Then that food shall be as reserve for the land for the seven years of dearth. It shall be in the land of Egypt as you shall observe so the land may not perish during the famine of the earth. God foreknew the time, trouble times that would come, and he sent Joseph to explain this to Pharaoh. And he knows of our own times of trials, when our hopes are dry and our wallets are narrow. But from God there is a better promise for us, when we will be taken into a broad and spacious place. Yes, for any who have called on Jesus, we someday will behold God face to face. Until that day we live in hope and not by sight, but our faith is what is most valued in God's eyes. It is what restores us to him and to his shining light. So let us keep our faith in Jesus, our hearts on the prize. Hallelujah and amen. Oh, God, what a beautiful word you've given us. Even the seemingly, the stories that just don't seem to make sense suddenly come into sharp focus when we see them through the lens of Jesus Christ. The glory which he has done in the world, it's just astonishing. How good you are to allow us to peer into the depths and the mysteries of your word and to know with certainty that you are on the throne and that everything is within your control. We don't need to worry about the bad day we had or about the sickness that is coming or the financial ruin. You have it all figured into your plan and in the end we will stand in your presence waving those palm fronds, shouting glory to the Lamb inhaling you forever, bringing you the glory which you are due, which we so continuously fail to give you at this point in our lives. Forgive us for that. Help us to redirect ourselves so that we bring you glory and honor. And Lord, please be with each person here in the week ahead through their trials and their troubles and the things that are weighing them down. Help them to focus on you, to look into your word, to meditate on that which is noble and true and good, and to come again to church so that they can be refreshed in the word that you've given us. Lord, thank you for these things. Be with each person. Be glorified in our lives. And thank you above all for the gift, the marvelous, the wonderful gift of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and what he did for us. And it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.